found a piece a pair like I've been f- staying on top of all the con stuff the past couple of days. The con stuff? Yeah, like the con film festival. Oh, 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 yeah. oh okay. I thought you meant like con as in convention. Oh no, like no. Con. <laughs> okay, yes. I mean, there was the whole drama about Netflix a few weeks ago and how Netflix films are being banned because apparently the the con film festival people have a bit of a uh, stick up their their asses when it comes to streaming giants. Isn't that like a technical thing though? Like traditionally, con has been a place where films that have no distribution gets picked up. But because a lot of because Netflix themselves distribute stuff, their films are kind of ineligible. And isn't there like some French law about? Yeah, it's a French law about about distribution. But like, I think Netflix was willing to. Uh, have their movies play in regular theaters before con in an effort to make them eligible. But con essentially said, no, you're not allowed. And then Netflix was, uh, was like, well, fine, we're taking our toys and going home. Yeah. Well, stupid pissing contest. Yeah. So, I mean, it's probably going to be a few years before that's all worked out. And then the other funny thing that I saw was, uh, apparently Jean-Luc Godard, uh, was back with another movie. Um, amazingly enough, the man is like 87, and he's still bringing movies to con, but uh, he decided to work some Michael Bay footage into his new film. And <laughs> from but he what movies? Apparently, it was uh, Thirteen Hours, the the Benghazi movie. Have you seen that? No. Oh, okay. All right. But the funny thing was that uh, I think I can't remember which outlet. I think it was might have been Kyle Buchanan from uh, Vulture got up to ask Godard a question via Skype uh, at one of the big press conferences, and Godard wouldn't admit to having used any Michael Bay footage in the uh, in the movie. Oh, really? Or at least he he claimed that he couldn't remember whether he'd used any, any footage from the movie. Well, he is super old, so... Yeah, and like, you know, uh, but the Godard was like arguing with him, and it got kind of awkward, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm still like, I'm still surprised that, uh, that Godard still comes to these things. You'd think he would... He would have just sort of retire, but not if the ego doesn't let him. Um, Thirteen Hours is a surprisingly competent movie. I stirred around it because I, you know, I'm just not interested in Bay's style of filmmaking. I think I've I've given him a the old college try, but the, that's the biggest thing about Thirteen Hours, though, is that if I didn't tell you it was a Michael Bay movie, there was no way you could have known. There's no sn- slow mo in that movie. Zero. Really? Because the trailers, the trailers seem to really gorge on like the the classic kind of like slow mo American flag and you know glorifying American soldiers kind of stuff well, that, he, that he's always all. I about. mean, that's I think in any war film that has America, America is always depicted that way. But I mean, like there might have been three sixty, like the three sixty spin he likes to do, but. I don't remember any of his like usual gimmicks being in 13 hours, which is why it's like for a war film in a Michael Bay film, it's kind of boring, but it works. So if if you ever have a chance, I'd just like give it a watch. I, I think you'll kind of be surprised how little Michael Bay How little Bayhem? Yes, how little Bayhem is in the movie. <laughs> um it's surprisingly not over the top. Oh, okay. All right. It has a very American sniper feel to it. Oh, all right. Yeah. Anyways, apparently the pieces that Godard used from this uh, uh, from this movie were just like really quick flashes of like gunfire and explosions or something um, in an effort mm-hmm. to prove a point. But mm-hmm. I still feel like, despite how much I was I, I hate on Michael Bay, I'm more likely to actually see Thirteen Hours than I am to see the new Godard film because I've I've watched a few of Godard's late period movies and they're 
very difficult to watch or at least to uh, at least to enjoy watching. It's it's always about the exercise and thinking about what <laughs> cinema is and what is culture, what is what is a movie, you know, it's all these kind of you have to be in a pretty um patient frame of mind to uh to to really stick with his stuff lately but on that note let's start the show welcome to another episode of the extra buttery podcast this time on the show, we're going to be going toe-to-toe with Infinity War. We kind of uh, skipped around it last episode in an effort to uh, do something a little bit different with our best movies of the 21st century episode, but we'll be talking about it this episode, a couple of weeks after the release. Jason and I have both seen it, and we'll get into that. I've seen it three times. What? Really? <laughs> God. Okay. Um, so more on that in a bit. Uh, we'll also touch on the new Joaquin Phoenix-Lynn Ramsey partnership, You Were Never Really Here. Definitely a change of pace from the Infinity Wars of the world. Then we'll also touch on a few other little bits of news, including uh, the legal trouble around Terry Gilliam's new movie, a few TV renewals and cancellations, and we'll see where the conversation takes us. But coming to you from Toronto, my name is Robert Snow, and joining me from Vancouver is my co-host, Jason Chen. How's it going? Good. How are you? Doing all right. Thanks for having me on your show. <laughs> <laughs> our show, our show. Come on now. Yeah, that's true. But yes, Infinity War. Infinity War, yeah. I mean, might as well get the uh, the, the big uh, gun out of the way. Tell me his name again. Thanos. He's a plague, Tony. He invades planets. He takes what he wants. He wipes out half the population. He sent Loki. The attack on New York. That's him. This is it. What's our timeline? No telling. He has the power in space stones. That already makes him the strongest creature in the whole universe. If he gets his hands on all six stones, Tony. He could destroy life on a scale hitherto undreamt of. Did you seriously just say hitherto undreamt of? Are you seriously leaning on the cauldron of the cosmos? Is that what that so I'm, I'm actually surprised to hear you say that you saw it three times. Well, watching movies multiple times in the theater isn't like something out of the ordinary for me. I saw Black Panther twice in theater. Okay. So the first time I watched it, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And then I told my mom about it and she had turned off the entire superhero thing right around when Thor came out. Like she wasn't that interested in Iron Man either. And she was kind of bored with all the other movies. But I was like, hey, like this is quite the spectacle. It's actually like if, you know, you're curious about what happens, I, I think it's worth going. And so I took her and she enjoyed it, but we went to our local theater, and it was a cineplex, but it was a smaller auditorium, and so she enjoyed it, but we both felt that like the the sound and the screen weren't loud or big enough. Okay. So on Mother's Day, she's like, oh, let's go see a movie, and I was like, all right, well, if you want to see a movie, we can go see it on like a bigger screen with bigger sound, and she's like, all right, okay, let's go, hmm. and so... That's how I saw it three times. All right. So what after after seeing it those three times, like, did your take on it change at all? Not really. But anytime you see a th- movie like three times within like a two three week span, by the third time you're kind of like looking forward to certain scenes. So it's a two and a half hour movie. So if there's certain scenes in the middle that 
I just I like I couldn't wait to like just get through. <laughs> there are a couple parts, especially with Thor going to that weird um, planet, which I can never say, and looking to make Stormbreaker think uh, with Peter Dinklage, the new axe. Yeah, the new axe, his new Thanos killing weapon. I like. I really couldn't care less. I just wanted him to like show up in Wakanda and start kicking butt because like right. I felt that entire subplot with him going to the planet and looking for the axe was just kind of. Really boring. <laughs> it was a really boring subplot. I was kind of... It's one of those scenes where, like, this character has to, like, do that and press this lever and, like, do this to get things going when, like, really, like, I mean, it's it's such a nothing subplot in terms of, like, the bigger picture of the movie. Yeah, I, I can see you. I can see that. I mean... At the time, because I've only seen it the one time, I was—I I guess I was uh, invested enough in that in that moment. But yes, the first time, yes. But yeah, I can see how maybe that would wear a bit thin on on repeated viewings. But I mean, maybe to step back a little bit. I mean, okay, yeah, <laughs> I got ahead of ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> because see, we're we're kind of we're drilling we're drilling right in there. But I mean, I ended up giving the movie about I think it was a three and a half out of four on mm-hmm. uh, in my the review that I posted to uh, to the site but that was actually I feel like I wasn't being true to myself <laughs> when I landed on that rating so you're gonna give it three out of four yeah because and and my my rationale was I went back and I read the reviews that I'd written when the first two or the previous two adventures came out mm-hmm. and I'd given both of them uh, three out of four at mm-hmm. the time which I disagree with <laughs> Yeah, retro re- like retroactively if I were to score rescore all three of them again, I would go two and a half, two and a half and three. Okay. In chronological order. Okay. I guess I'm sticking to the by by giving it that extra half a star uh in the review I wrote a few weeks ago, I'm just kind of like accounting for that uh, that little disparity there. Right. But I mean, I wanted to basically uh, make it clear that I did enjoy this one uh, more than the other two. So, uh there's that. Yeah, so I think there's something to be said when a film really executes it perfectly. Well, this wasn't perfect, but it, it was very well executed. If you break the film down into structures and, and certain thematic elements, it is like any other superhero movie. The only difference is that there are not a lot of superhero movies that has such a huge ensemble cast, and yet you walk away from the theater feeling like no none of the characters were underserved yeah yeah and i think the i I think that's the biggest strength from the russo brothers i do think it's somewhere it falls somewhere between three and three and a half if you're going on the four star scale i gave it four out of five on letterbox and i would never give it anything higher than that Mm. um i was toying with the idea with three and a half but i just felt that there were enough moments where i was genuinely entertained and excited and I thought Thanos was a very compelling villain, even though I think a lot of his motivations aren't exactly original. No. Um, I, I think the only thing that makes him different from a lot of villains that, you know, want to rule the world is that Thanos, for whatever reason, believes that only half the galaxy's population deserves to die. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not exactly sure how he comes up with the arbitrary half. I'd be interested to know how he does the math. And I think there are enough certain Easter eggs and teasers in there to really make you want more, which was a feeling I didn't, I never got after Age of Ultron. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. And like, 
I, I mean, I'm with you on the the appraisal of Thanos too, because as a villain, you know, it would have it would have been deadly for this movie to have a villain like, say, Ronan the Accuser from the first Guardians movie, or uh, Yellow Jacket from Ant Man. You know, like villains who are just like one note, poorly motivated, and blah blah blah. But so the the Thanos that they bring they bring up here, I mean, he's he's worthy of the dozen or so movies worth of buildup that they've given him over uh, over the past number of years. Actually, some of his best material has nothing to do with fighting the Avengers or big CGI-fueled punch-em-up moments. It's actually the the dialogue scenes for me between him and Gamora or him and other characters where he talks a little bit about where his head's at or expresses like disappointment or, or sadness that, that uh, his daughter Gamora really hates him as much as she does. Remember the part where they go to find the soul stone? Yeah. And Thanos makes like kind of like a throwaway comment about how he turned his back on his destiny once and he wasn't going to do it again. Yeah. That was a very interesting line to me. I'm sure they'll explain it in the next Avengers movie. But I, I feel like Thanos, there's a depth to him that a lot of other Marvel villains didn't have. I didn't think Yellow Jacket was that bad. I, I just think he was kind of miscast. I didn't really like Corey Stoll in that villain role. Mm. And uh, what was the other villain you talked about? Oh, uh, Ronan the Accuser from Guardians. Ronan the Accuser, right. So Ronan, I thought, was at least you know not a human character, or he was like an alien species of some kind. And and I think in that movie, he was a bit over the top enough that I actually enjoyed his performance. But I agree with you that the villain's... Thanos, especially with the amount of building or character building that um, we experienced in this movie and his performance, I think, um, really helped the movie along. I also have to say, like, I actually enjoyed his henchmen. Oh, really? Because I felt that they were like, they kind of distracted a bit. I d- you didn't like Ebony Maw? Uh... I thought him and Proxima M- Midnight were kind of cool villains. Like, they look cool. I mean, the design was cool. I'll give them that. Yeah, the design was cool. I think they had some interesting villainy lines, whatever. It's something along the lines of, like, this is your salvation and not your death. Like, we've come to save you by oh, yeah. killing you because this world is terrible and we don't need you kind of kind of deal. It's almost like a, an Orwellian kind of euphemistic way of talking. Yeah. Yes, yes. So I enjoyed that part. The other two villains, um, the, the big giant dude, I can't remember his name. I think it was Quake or something like that. And then the, the guy with the spear was just kind of like a sniveling villain. So I didn't enjoy it that much. But, I mean... I definitely walked away not thinking that they were throwaway characters. And maybe this is this is where we kind of uh, throw up a, the the spoiler alert because we'll uh, we'll need to you know if you're at this point you still haven't seen it yet maybe turn away. But well, you know, too bad, <laughs> too bad. Yeah, uh, the thing that I really fixated on in uh, in the review I wrote was. It had a lot to do with the ending, obviously, because that's what's that's what's really churning up the conversation. Because, I mean, essentially, they do get to the end of this movie and they kill off yes. half of the entire universe. And that includes... Oh, well, kill off in air quotes. Exactly. And that's, and that's what, kind of the thrust of, of my argument was that, you know, any careful or even like semi-careful viewer of these movies knows that the vast majority of the people who die, in, in air quotes, in that closing scene are actually going to come back to life in some way in the next one, you know, whether it's being through some sort of thing with the soul stone or whatever. I'm the, you know, they're going to bring them all, a lot of them back. Well, I was going to say my only counter argument with that is 
we know the characters are going to be back in some capacity, but there is a certain mystery about how they're going to bring them back and which ones they bring back. Because I, I don't believe that even if they bring back all of them, I still expect a number of them to actually die in the next film, including Captain America. I think he he's the one that makes the ultimate sacrifice and Iron Man saves everyone, but but Captain America ultimately dies. But anyway, that that's that's my kind of theory. The one thing I thought they executed very well was like the characters in the film. I think you really sympathize with them. I think especially having watched Civil War right before Avengers Infinity War, the main crux of the the conflict in Civil War was about government intervention and, and whether or not they want to be part of the UN or not. That kind of conflict doesn't really resonate with the audience, I think, because every single audience member who goes to see a superhero movie is like, cool, I want to have those superpowers yeah, anyway, yeah. I don't care. But for for this one, I think you really sympathize with Iron Man and, and Raccoon and all the ones that survived because they really sold you on the fact that they really felt a genuine loss when their their friends and their team members started to turn into Ash. Yeah, I guess so. And I mean, like, you know, certainly the, the moment between Peter Parker and Tony Stark when Peter is like... Uh, yeah, crumbling away to dust in Tony's arms. You know, I mean, the, the, those two actors, uh, Tom Holland and Robert Downey Jr., do a pretty good job of selling you on the the emotion of that. You know, especially you know Tony being the uh, the quote unquote leader of the Avengers and the guy who you know loves to obsess over which characters he's benching in certain uh, fights and all this stuff. And I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I know those characters are going to come back, but I am very interested. Or the, the movie still made me very interested in their journey of getting them back and, and how they're going to get them back. I, I, I think at the end of Infinity War, my interest in the Avengers kind of peaked a little rather than winding down or losing complete interest as Age of Ultron briefly did. So I, I am looking forward to Avengers 4, which is what the movie sets out to accomplish anyway. So kudos to that. And, and maybe this was a this has less to do with the movie itself and more to do with the, the buzz uh, before the movie dropped. And, you know, they're saying like, Oh, they're going to kill people. They're going to kill people. And then they don't actually kill people uh, or the, <laughs> the characters who are can't believe that PR marketing stuff. They did kill off Loki. I think Loki stays dead. Heimdall definitely stays dead. There's a line to that effect where, like, you know, uh, Thor says something like he believes that this might actually be a real death this time. Yes. So make of that what you will. One other thing I wanted to point out, too, was that the Avengers and the Marvel Universe has been criticized for not having a distinct theme to go along with it. I definitely felt in this one, like, especially when Captain America showed up, that his theme was, for whatever reason, much more recognizable in this film and maybe it's because we've kind of like heard it a couple times and subconsciously we've kind of remembered it, even though it's not particularly memorable. And so when they go to Wakanda, I can definitely hear the Black Panther soundtrack. When they when Captain America shows up, I could definitely hear that very like Captain America music. Yeah, the kind of bugle like military type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I think that was actually like quite an accomplishment for Marvel because I can tell you what the music was like in either of the previous Avengers. Movies. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's a huge flaw. Yeah, they've they've definitely been appropriately, in my, in my view, uh, critiqued for kind of dropping the ball with their scores and their soundtracks over the years. It works, but it's not memorable. 
that that was the criticism. Yeah, it just kind of fills in the background noise, essentially. I also have to say, like, it was also one of the worst, like, post-credit scenes ever. What, in the sense? What all we saw is a trailer for Captain Marvel. <laughs> yeah, or a teaser, rather, yeah. A teaser, yes. Which, I think, in in past movies, the, the post-credit scene has always been kind of revealed certain tidbits about the larger story or had quite a bit of comedy to go with it. But I thought the post credit scene in this one was particularly boring. I only watched it once. The other two times, I didn't even stay for it because I, I just I wasn't really interested. Yeah, once you know what it's doing, it's kind of you know it's there to serve more of a function than anything else. Right, but like, was it Spider Man or one of them where like Captain America pulls the kind of pulls it over your head and he's like, "What are you guys doing here? Movie's over. Go home." Yeah, yeah, yeah that Spider-Man. was Spider Man. Yeah, okay, yeah. so that that was a good one. I, I enjoyed that one. Was there anything in particular that you really liked? I do really like Thor. I've I've kind of come to the realization that he's my favorite Avenger right now. Dumb Thor is like really much more attractive as a character than God Thor, isn't he? Yes. They've obviously let the aspects of Ragnarok bleed over into uh, into the Thor from this movie. And yes. I, I love that because Ragnarok is definitely one of my favorites of the the whole yeah. series. I don't know. I just like, I like the arc that he's going through, you know, sort of also like, I, I kind of like Hulk's arc as well because he kind of came out of that Ragnarok storyline. I'm still not a big Mark Ruffalo fan, but I thought match pairing Thor with the Guardians of the Galaxy was a really smart move. Yes. Yeah. And that's what, that's what kind of led me to, to enjoy that, like forging of the new weapon kind of uh, scene a little bit, even though it, it totally breaks like so many rules of science all all at once. Um, (laughs) Science doesn't work in the Avengers universe. What are you talking about? No, I know, but I, I, there's a, there's actually a really great YouTube account uh, that's a a spinoff from uh, Nerdist. It's Mm -hmm. called uh, because science and this uh, science guy kind of breaks down some of the notable scenes from uh, pop culture and uh, he touched on the the forging of the, the of the axe from this movie uh, recently and uh, you know i mean the 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 whole business with like the neutron star and being able to breathe in space and all that stuff it's uh, uh, it's just funny to think about the actual um, uh, scientific implications of what thor is actually doing in that scene uh, as ridiculous as it is oh it was also very interesting to me or at least fun for me to see Thanos using the different powers of each stone. Yeah, like the reality stone is. Yes, I, I don't think the whole time the reality stone was uh, was kind of a plot point in Thor: The Dark World. We didn't really get to see it being used in this way, so it, yes. that was kind of a new thing for this movie. Yeah, so the power stone, the purple one, still kind of gets me. I'm just like, I don't quite understand what it does. Yeah, but but I think for all the other stones, and the soul stone is actually one that they haven't really explained, but. I, I think he was uh, one of the directors. I think they dropped a hint about how all the characters who died are trapped in the Soul Stone world or something like that. Yeah, which I think is uh, direct from the comics in some way. Yeah, that's the only stone that hasn't been really explained or revealed a whole lot. Yeah. But I I, I think all the other stones, it was really interesting to see him use it because a lot of times in these movies, they're always like, oh, I need to get this powerful weapon or I need to do this or I need to do that. Kind of like Stormbreaker where you're just, you're just like, I thought we established in Thor Ragnarok that he doesn't need an axe to be the th- the god of thunder. You know, and then all of a sudden he needs a Stormbreaker axe. I'm like, 
why again? Sorry, I don't I don't get it. Uh, I had a friend of mine reach out to me after I published the review who, you know, he, he kind of wanted to share his his take on it. He felt a little bit betrayed, actually, that as though the that whole angle with forging a new weapon uh, kind of invalidated a lot of the progress that Thor made as a character in Ragnarok. Yes. And I didn't feel quite as betrayed as he did, but the I can I can definitely see where he was coming from, like that, you know, the Ragnarok invests a lot of the third act's drama in Thor kind of coming to that realization. And then yes. he he kind of falls back into the the ways of the, the older, more hot-headed Thor in this one. And <laughs> maybe you can chalk that up to him being like grieving Loki and all the people who died in the opening scene or or whatever, and he's not like thinking clearly, but it did feel like they were, I don't know, maybe conveniently ignoring some of the recent developments in an effort to kind of, to get that big, that big weapon into play. Yeah. So like I said, that was like the worst side quest subplot that I like, I did, didn't care anything for. Or well, maybe it's more of like a red herring when you think about it. Like they build, they do a lot of this build up. So thinking, telling you that like this is the key thing that will actually kill Thanos, and Thor gets it, and he comes down to Wakanda, and you're thinking to yourself, "All right, he can actually stop this from happening," but it doesn't really amount to very much. And Thor and uh, Thanos is still able to uh, go through with his plan. So it's um, well, yeah. Remember he throws the axe at him, and Thanos is like, "You should have aimed for the head." Yeah. Yeah, and you're like, oh great! It's getting like kind of self-referential here about how like villains never get dealt with just that one time. They always yeah, have to be yeah. kept alive by the good guys. I did enjoy the entrance of Captain America, so that made up for it. Yeah, they kind of they went in a cool sort of spy thriller type of uh, type of direction with that. So that was that was pretty cool. And it, I can tell you one thing: the the crowd that I was with opening night, they were loving it. Like the moment. Oh yes, the moment Captain America turns up in that that nice oh, they reveal. Cheered. What was it? Wasn't even a it wasn't even a cheer in my in my screening. It was this one one dude behind me. It was with a group of his friends, and he was like, "Oh shit!" And <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "Does Captain America have a reputation for being that much of a badass? Not really." Yeah. So like the two moments that drew the most cheers in my auditorium when I first saw it was the appearance of Captain America, and then when Thor landed in Wakanda. Yeah. Yeah. And then the biggest laugh was probably when Chris Hemsworth and Chris Pratt kind of had like uh, a face to face standoff when they first meet. Yeah. And they were like, Chris Pratt is doing the British accent or trying to. And Yeah. And he's trying to copy him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So those were probably the top three highlights in my, in my theater. Yeah. Um, and then, well, when the credits started to roll in my screening, uh, the, uh, the this, this group behind me, they were like basically wrecked by that ending and uh, at least one of the girls in the in the group was like on the verge of tears because she was convinced that all of the deaths were permanent (laughs) and people were having to console her and i'm like (laughs) and and i just had this moment where i saw the death of cinema like uh happening before my eyes and i'm like (laughs) you people need to watch more better variety of movies please don't get so invested or just understand how the movie business works yeah i don't know i I have no problems with people being invested in the characters in the movies i I think that's the best part yeah but i think it's naive to think that they all actually died 
Are you more or less excited for Avengers 4 now? It's coming out next year, right? Yeah, next year, after uh, Captain Marvel, I guess. Right. Honestly, like, this this movie didn't really move the needle for me. I mean, I just sort of... So that's why you knocked it down a, a half star. I mean, I won't change the, the ratings on any of the reviews, but I don't know. Like, I, I just kind of settled into this uh, this frame of mind that Marvel movies are my future, and I will end up seeing them or risk being out of touch with culture as we know it so uh, <laughs> for the most part i wouldn't say i hated any of the experiences so i am with you on the three out of four score i might tilt towards three and a half on a good day if i'm feeling generous and kind but i think three out of four is a solid score for it because the other two films were not three out of four movies cool well uh maybe we'll change tracks now of you know yeah moving after, on after committing uh committing a, a suitably sizable chunk of the episode to infinity war maybe we'll just talk a bit about um, this new lynn ramsey film that both of us saw recently uh you you were never really here man called and he wants to see you right away state senator albert vato his teenage daughter's missing what's the lead you got an anonymous text with an address. I've heard of these places. They said you were brutal. I can be. I want you to hurt them. When did you see it? I saw it the weekend it came out in limited release, so I guess that would have been, yeah, maybe a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I saw it in limited release, too. It took it took me like a while to wrap my head around it though. Yeah, me too. I mean, the I I knew it was coming out for a few months because I had heard about it when it premiered at Con last year and was sort of tracking it. Oh, you know, there there was rumors that it was going to hit North America in November or December of last year, but I was definitely aware of like the director. I haven't seen anything by her. Uh, up to this point, friend of mine was is a huge fan of her and really loved her movie. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin, uh, starring Tilda Swinton. I avoided that movie on purpose because it was just way too creepy for me. But I mean, she brings what I think is you know a style that she's pretty it's pretty well defined for her at this point to this movie with starring Joaquin Phoenix, where he plays this uh, enforcer or uh, gun for hire who has come back from uh, some not identified uh, conflict, uh, maybe in the Middle East. We're not quite sure exactly what what uh, time period he might have been involved, um, but he's obviously come back with all of this PTSD, and he has a history of abuse going back to even before he was a soldier. And now he kind of specializes in tracking down and rescuing girls who have gone missing, young girls but using very brutal methods to rescue them. This movie kind of plunges you right into it. And I think, well, you mentioned in the review that that you posted recently that, you know, it's kind of admirable how the movie, you know, treats the, the audience like a, uh, like an intelligent viewer and doesn't uh, overburden us with exposition or anything. I think this movie's greatest strength is that it doesn't feel the need to explain anything to you. Yeah. I think you definitely learn more about the film as you go along and you start putting together pieces of the plot, but you're never burdened by the details. And you, you don't realize you don't need the details until after the movie. I, I think there's a, a subplot involving like the father of the the daughter that was abducted and some sort of like scandal her father was involved in. But you never really know for sure what 
exactly what it was. And all Ramsey does is says, look, here's this person. He's overweight. He's ugly. He's scarred. He's taking care of his mom. And he is looking for ways to basically kill himself all the time. And I think a lot of crime films always want to have that big payoff film where they kind of slowly meander through the plot and all the the twists and turns and and then they have this big payoff at the end because you, you you realize what the characters are invested in and and how they're motivated but in this one i think it's really interesting and, and a real breath of fresh air to just drop in and just be a part of the movie as the characters going through like a pivotal moment in their lives yeah it's 90 minutes long so it gets to the point quite quickly, but it doesn't do it through exposition. It just does it through images and sounds, and it's really, really effective. Yeah, like one one of the words that really, uh, really applies well to this movie is texture. Like you yes. don't texture is not a word that uh, always comes up when you're talking about movies, but it really applies here because it's that there's this very specific kind of interweaving of uh, of sounds and of those images and just like mm-hmm. uh, kind of off kilter shots and there's certain scenes where you can definitely notice that sounds are brought up, say like when he's like shuffling on carpet, you can really hear it and and, and she does that on purpose and I, I think that just adds more tension into it in my review i kind of compared it to moonlight which kind of gave me the same feeling about texture of a film yeah Um, yeah it's really hard to to pull off and it wasn't until after you posted that my review that i learned that lynn ramsey avoided all these like really potentially complicated action sequences because they didn't have the money to do it Oh, okay. I just thought it was interesting that she refused to do it and that you're discovering things as Joe is and he's not central to all the violence in the film. Yeah, because it, you know, that's that and that's probably a case, you know, uh oftentimes when they're talking about like but movies that operate on really restricted budgets, it's the it's the restriction on the production that actually creates some of the most overwhelming or uh significant experiences in the movie because the filmmakers literally can't do something and so by not being able to do it they actually almost call attention to it in a roundabout sort of way Mm -hmm. and in the case of this movie it's it's examples like a fight that happens in a motel room where the camera kind of drifts up and looks at the action happening but you it's distorted and and uh, warped by the mirror on the the ceiling of the of the motel room yeah and you end up thinking to yourself at the mo at the time you're watching it you're like oh okay so it's not really this movie isn't about glorifying the violence it's it, you know it's not about being in the moment for joe it's uh you know it's just sort of something that's happening yeah and at the very final moments of the film where he follows the abducted girl to this like mansion out in the middle of nowhere yeah. Um. When he gets there, all the violence has already happened. Yeah, essentially. And yet it is still like one of the most tense things I've seen all year. And you really didn't need to see it for the film to be effective. There was one part at the very end where he's at the diner and something happens. I won't spoil it, but that was probably like the most jarring part of the film. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of c- cops out because it's a bit of a fake out scene. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought it was very well done. Too. The music in this film, which is done by uh, Johnny Greenwood, I didn't know that he had worked with 
Paul Thomas Anderson and, and Joaquin Phoenix so many times in the past, but I mean, this, this guy is, he's probably going to get a lot of buzz in the, in the, over the course of his career. I, I think he's really, really good. Yeah. Like how old is he? I, d- I didn't look up any of his biographical details, but I don't know. I imagine he was, he's like, you know, like fairly young. He's 46. Oh, you just checked? Okay. Yeah. When I went to see this one, I didn't know that he was involved until the credits rolled. But when I saw his name, I immediately recognized it from uh, the Phantom Thread or Phantom Thread, whatever it is, mm-hmm. because his score had been so central to Phantom Thread. Yes. And so I recognized his name right away and I'm like, oh, cool. All right. Uh, and now I kind of, I can kind of see a similar thread, uh, pardon the pun, uh, from, between what he was doing in Phantom Thread and what he was doing here and how those individual movies kind of played with his style. For those who don't know, Johnny Greenwood is also the, uh, I think he was the lead guitarist for um, Radiohead. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and Radiohead has done a, a lot of like people who are really into music that I know love Radiohead. It's not a band I ever really got into because, but Radiohead does some pretty interesting, creative and, and innovative stuff with music. And so it's it's not a surprise that his his like experimentation has translated so well to a film like this. But Ramsey, Lynn Ramsey doesn't make a lot of films. So I, I'm kind of hopeful she starts making more because she's she's really something else. Like I, I can probably watch a film and tell you right away if it's a Lynn Ramsey film or not. It's so distinct in, in its style. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't know whether the... The increased kind of buzz around this movie is going to cause her to speed up at all or whether she'll kind of stick to a tried and true kind of one movie every few years kind of schedule. But yeah, I mean, color me, color me intrigued. Uh, maybe we'll jump from that over to I just wanted to talk really quickly about something that I've been like obsessing over uh, recently. <laughs> and this is the the crazy saga around Terry Gilliam's new movie, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Can I read? Like you cannot read. I will sound the words, and you can look at the pictures. He actually believes he's Don Quixote. This is going to be fun. He's a saint. He's insane. Uh, I don't know. Have you been seeing news about this kind of filter through to to your feed, or uh... yes? Yes. So, uh, but I, I mean, please enlighten me because I, I don't, I definitely don't know as much about it as you. So essentially, Terry Gilliam from uh, famously uh, one of the six uh, Pythons from Monty Python, you know, he's he's had a long career uh, making uh, as a writer, director, you know, he's made movies like Brazil and Time Bandits and 12 Monkeys, 12 Monkeys, you know, which was which was a uh, an English reboot of a uh, French short film by uh, Chris Marker and also excellent. So go check it out if you haven't. Oh, yeah. That's actually probably one of his more like commercially successful movies. Yes. And then in recent years, he's done stuff like uh, The Zero Theorem with Christoph Waltz, several others. But I'm I'm definitely like a, I, I would call myself a pretty big fan of his. Uh, I love Brazil. Uh, and, um, okay. you know, the Criterion Collection has been a great way to uh, to kind of catch up on some of his older stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, but in between all of these movies that he's been working on for the past uh, 30 years has been this one movie, which started out as like a pretty straightforward adaptation of the the famous novel uh, Don Quixote by, uh, 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 how do you pronounce his name? Cervantes? Yes. The Spanish poet. He has had nothing but 
misery trying to make this movie for the past 30 years. It started out in the in the 80s uh, trying to trying to produce the film in Spain while I believe Franco's government, the, the, the fascist dictator Franco was in the final throes of, of its regime. And the, the production was constantly being interrupted by like fighter jets flying overhead or uh, a sudden rainstorm that caused a flash flood that washed away all, like all of their equipment uh, to the, the lead actor getting uh, severely injured to the point where he couldn't even ride a horse for any of the key scenes. This, the first like attempt at making the movie was documented in a behind the scenes movie called uh, Lost in La Mancha, which I've been meaning to see for a long time, just, just from descriptions of how crazy it is. Mm-hmm. So production on, on this movie kind of stalled out for 10 or 15 years, but then it's been kind of getting close to resuming in recent years. He's, uh, Gilliam has pursued funding from a couple of different sources. He's tried on an, on a couple of occasions to get it back up and running, but it wasn't until a few years ago, I think about 2015, 2016, that he finally got all of the money together to actually start production. And in that space of time, the story kind of changed a little bit. It went from being kind of a straightforward adaptation of the novel to a kind of modern day black comedy kind of twist on it with uh, following an ad executive who kind of gets pulled into this weird attempt to recreate the novel within the world of the movie. And so the, the movie as it's filmed has Adam driver, Terry Gilliam's frequent collaborator, uh, Jonathan price and a whole bunch of other great, great, uh, uh, cast members. And he finally got it made, but in the attempt to like actually edit it and get it released, he get kept getting hit with like legal, challenges by his various financiers who were upset about uh, feeling like they were being cut out of the production and that they would be denied any royalties from uh, the release (laughs) of the movie. And this just kept getting uh, building up and building up to and it got to the point that they were just ready to release it at con this week. But then one of the financiers successfully challenged Gilliam in, in court and in an effort to block it from being shown in France, which would have made it ineligible for con. And then one of the financiers, uh, actually Amazon Studios, threatened to pull out if the movie failed that legal challenge. Um, and then on top of all of that, Terry Gilliam actually had a minor stroke and was sent to hospital. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, I, I think it's, it's fair to say that, that this movie should be held up alongside other, other like famously troubled productions like uh, Apocalypse Now, movies of that ilk, because it's... Uh, it's it's astonishing to me that Gilliam is finally getting this thing in front of people's eyeballs after all this time. <laughs> I, I think it'll gain a lot more traction as one of the most storied movies in development if it does well at con. Yeah. So if it, if it doesn't do well, then people just forget it, you know? Part of the legend of Apocalypse Now is that it's, it's a very good film. Yeah, exactly. It's a masterpiece of the 20th century. So... Is there a film out there that's been in production longer than than this? This is like thirty years now. I mean, it's it's hard to kind of to kind of do a definitive ranking because the you know this movie kind of died for so, such a long period of time. It's not like it was in active development the whole right. time. Okay, it had it had long gaps in between. Mm-hmm. But if you if you do chart it from when he first tried to make it to now, it's been at least twenty <laughs> to thirty years. That's 
Well, what are your expectations? I mean, honestly, I really don't know. I, I really, I hope for, for his sake that it, it even gets to be like a medium success. Uh, you know, it's at least mildly entertaining and successful as a movie. He's had some flops. He has had some flops and, and definitely his, his like style of black comedy isn't for everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, the, so certainly movies into some of his recent releases, like uh, the zero theorem, it's just people have felt that they're a little bit muddled or they the comedy doesn't really land or he's being a little bit too obvious with his uh, metaphors and stuff like that so who knows i mean maybe maybe this is a whole lot of sound and fury over nothing i don't know for speaking as a gilliam fan i'm i'm still very I'm cautiously optimistic the one thing i you kind of touched on this is uh christoph waltz he hasn't made a good movie in a while hey uh, yeah unfortunately not uh, at least i mean i can't speak for any of his like I don't know. Does he still do movies in German? Uh, I don't know. Because I don't, I don't know if he's been doing like German movies on the side and maybe those are oh, maybe. actually good and, and it's just his Hollywood movies that are kind of stinkers. But but yeah, I can see what you mean. Like he's he's had a bit of a run where he's been, I don't know, chewing the scenery a little yes. bit, kind of trading too much on that uh, shit-eating grin that uh, <laughs> that he uh, kind of made famous in Inglorious Bastards. Yes. Um, when is it playing? con or when's it set to debut i think it's in the next few days if it hasn't already debuted uh i haven't seen any like advanced buzz around it yet so i'm thinking maybe it's it might be like a closing night film uh-huh. uh, at the festival but if amazon is picking it up that means that it's highly likely it'll get a theatrical release of some sort here in toronto uh, because amazon tends to bring their movies here they're not distributing it though amazon aren't they are uh they're definitely kicking in some sort of money for it they yeah so this was actually announced last week, but uh, Amazon has put in a lot of money into it. But I think they're not distributing the, the film, at least in the U.S. I don't know about Canada, but I don't think they're distributing the film in the U.S. Oh, okay. All right. So I'm looking at the budget. And it's 16 million euros, mm. which is not a heck of a lot. So I'm wondering, like, why did he get did, why did he have so much trouble getting money? Like, it's Terry Gilliam. He, he's, he's got, like, clout. People know his stuff. And 60 million euros is not like particularly a large sum. I feel like it's kind of like uh, it might be two reasons primarily. Um, first is that his movies, especially his recent movies, have not really been great commercial successes. Yes. They tend to, from what I've seen, they tend to make back their budget, but it's not like they have people flocking to the movie theaters or anything. Mm -hmm. It might also be to do with the, just the concept of this particular movie is a little bit high-minded. You know, you've got a... You've got like an ad executive played by right. Adam Driver who gets pulled into this kind of fanciful, literally like tilting at windmills, like right from the from the novel. Uh, right. This this quest by by an elderly guy played by Jonathan Price. Um, so it doesn't have a very very clean plot that people can really latch onto. Okay, it might be that might be one of the reasons why it's been so hard to sell. I am a little intrigued after listening to you talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I've I, I'm a bit of a sucker for these kind of productions where they they just have so many so much trouble trying to get them made, and then they finally do them, and you're, it's such a labor of love, and and then you see it, and you're like, you're all of a sudden your experience as a, as a viewer is a little bit more complicated because you don't know like how much slack to give them, <laughs> considering they they put so much uh, some blood, sweat, and tears into it. Well, yeah, I mean that's what happened to Fury Road, right? It was yeah, it exactly. took years to develop and and get everything done. 
fun fact that is uh, the sequel to that is still in development hell. So uh, <laughs> George Miller is suing Warner Brothers over uh, unpaid royalties, I believe. So uh, and maybe just to, uh, to close out for a final segment uh, for this episode, while the all the business at Con is going fast and furious right now, the, another thing that's happening, the big announcements over renewals and cancellations for TV shows. Uh, uh, yes. So there was a few things kind of kind of caught up in this uh, in the mix here. The probably the the one that dominated the internet over the weekend was the uh, sudden cancellation of Brooklyn Nine Nine by Fox, or the very very short lived cancellation of Brooklyn Nine Nine. Well, exactly because the good news is that NBC has decided to sort of come to the rescue and uh, order a season six. Well, they sold it to Fox though, eh? In the first place, yeah, they had the original. You know, the it was a show that was created by their TV production arm and then licensed by Fox for broadcast you know there's been some talk over what actually prompted the the initial cancellation by fox i think one of their executives essentially blamed it on the uh the upcoming acquisition by disney mm-hmm. but then nbc essentially said that well no it's it's not just because fox is allegedly being acquired by disney it's that comcast is is made a counter offer yes. for fox's properties and comcast owns nbc universal so it just became this like big chess match over like who had the rights to to this really popular property and who was going to do what with it. And I guess the the poor fans were kind of caught in the in the middle middle of it all. Yes, um, the telecom interest in industry is actually quite interesting. Um, if if you ever bother to to look into it, because it's is dominated by a few players and it's so, in my opinion, needlessly convoluted and, and confusing and complicated. Yeah. And so that's why all these deals... And also because I think a lot of times the government tried to maintain a level, certain level of competition in market forces. And so there are always uh, government and lobbyist opposition to these kinds of mergers, these big mega mergers. Oh, yeah, of course. Like, yeah. So, like, I mean, like, Sprint and I think T-Mobile have been talking about a merger for, like, the past 10 years now. So For a show that, I mean, admittedly, I myself, I mean, I've I've watched a, a good chunk of the episodes and, and I, I quite like it. You know, it's uh, for for a procedural kind of cop comedy. It's it's actually uh, it plays with the formula a little bit. It, it It's very clever. Yeah, it was it was kind of a shame to hear that it had been briefly canceled for all of like 24 hours or 36 hours or whatever so good good to see that it it found a home after all that do you think community would have been canceled had it been running like in this oh i don't know i mean who had who had community to start with like who was behind that nbc was it nbc okay i don't but i mean like it it, it had a huge cult following like brooklyn 99 did it did but then i mean the the result the whole drama behind the scenes with like chevy chase and dan Harmon. so right okay brooklyn yes. nine brooklyn 99 didn't have quite that same aspect to it and and shout out to melissa fumero too amy as amy santiago she she i think she's the best character on the show <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that that whole cast is so strong i mean they and uh in many ways, like it's it's really elevated the careers of of several of the people involved, including Melissa Fumero, but uh, also um, the actor who plays Boyle, Jolo Truglio. He's a little much, though, eh? Don't you find? He's a little much. Like his char- his character's a little much. But now, when I see Jolo Truglio on like other stuff, like indie movies and stuff, I'm like, hey, it's Boyle. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, and 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 then he, of course, he's playing characters who are very different from Boyle, and you kind of go through a bit of a uh, a shock for a moment. He uh, he pops up every 
now and then in movies where there's like a big Saturday Night Live contingent. Mm, yeah. Like I remember him popping up in Superbad. And uh, I also saw that Netflix picked up uh, Lost in Space, right? Yeah. And this was a show that I actually like I kind of got into in a sort of backdoor kind of way because I heard about it being rebooted and then it came to Netflix and I was like, ah, I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't not that I had watched the 98 movie with Gary Oldman or had watched very many of the episodes of the, the original 60s show. But, you know, it was kind of like I knew immediately what they were rebooting because the, the whole last thing about Will Robinson and his robot pal is like so ingrained in like classic TV pop culture that like almost everyone knows danger Will Robinson, even though they've never actually seen the show to see Netflix kind of come along and do this big budget kind of glitzy reboot of it. I was like, Oh, well, well, who, I mean, uh, this could go both ways, but I kind of got into it and liked it for what it was. I mean, it's, it definitely has a moments where it has pacing problems, version of the villainous Dr. Smith played by Parker Posey. She can be a little bit one note. <laughs> uh, yep. But it, uh, I'm curious to see what they do with the second season. And uh, Netflix is, uh, can't just came out today to confirm that they've ordered one. And, and like anyone who's seen the this first season end to end will know that they're kind of going off they, they are kind of going off in a, a bit of a different direction from the the versions that we've seen before. So, you know, there's there's potential here to kind of build it into something into something rather new for the franchise. Well, I, th- I think we should take a little look ahead into the next couple of weeks because we've we've got some big names coming out. Yeah, I mean, we're going to hit, uh, I think, round about the time this episode drops on Apple Podcasts and on Google Play. Deadpool 2 will be in theaters. And then, of course, you've yes. got uh, Solo coming out. Which is getting some positive buzz. I'm a little Are you surprised. By that? surprised. Yes, I'm a little surprised. I don't know. I feel like it's common these days for positive buzz to, to really pop up early. And then sometimes... So, same when... It's either, like, positive or negative. There's no, like, in-between, eh? Yeah. And I don't know if that's just, like, the people they, they choose to to go to the advanced screenings, but... Right. Have you read in, in detail any of the early reactions to Solo? No, I just know that it's a uh, heist film in space. So, I mean, I mean, you can't really go wrong with that. No, I mean, that's that's a format that I like anyway, so... Yes, I agree. And I think and that I saw another figure that suggested that Ron Howard had reshot 70% of the movie. Isn't he getting director's credit? Uh, I don't know how that works out. I recently heard that Ron Howard is going to get sole directing credit and Phil Lord and Chris Miller are going to get, I think, producer or executive producer or writing credit. Oh, okay. Is that the compromise? It was a little surprising to me that they took so many risks in um, the, the Last Jedi. So It sounds like... Part of the the kind of trouble behind the scenes on Solo was that, you know, maybe uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller pushed that risk taking further than even Lucasfilm could allow, which admittedly probably wasn't very far. But, um, you know, they obviously gave Ryan Johnson quite a bit of leeway, more leeway than anyone expected with Episode 8. And then Solo was being shot, you know almost concurrently so uh i had also heard that lord and miller were taking like a long time to accomplish things yeah yeah and they were like you know they've got a style that they've been working with going back to the jump street movies you know very improvisational and um apparently the brass at lucasfilm were essentially coming back after a day's shooting with with lord and miller and saying like well you know if it wasn't Lord and Miller, we would have a lot more footage in the can today, but we just mm-hmm. were not and we're super behind. Mm-hmm. So they started to worry that 
even if the whole improv route was getting them really good material, it was just going to put them so far behind that it would be too expensive to continue. Mm-hmm. That That's what I heard at least. And, and then there was like apparently other disagreements about tone and stuff. Like maybe I think maybe Kathleen Kennedy thought that uh, it was a bit too jokey for a Star Wars film. Yeah, we will. We will see. I mean, uh, the it'll all be revealed in a. Uh, in about a week and a half. And I think I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I will I will not listen to the random dude who was sitting behind me at Infinity War who went on a big tear about how terrible The Last Jedi was apropos of nothing. He decided decided that he was going to treat the entire screening to his uh <laughs> what well he had a running commentary about the last jedi when you were watching infinity during the credits of infinity war oh and because we were all sitting there waiting for the end credit scene we all had to listen to him oh okay <laughs> you didn't want to engage with him i, I, re- I like i was biting my tongue like he, he what was he saying what was his just the criticism? same old stuff that like all of the assholes on twitter have been going on about the last jedi you know like the the they the hating on the cantina scene and hating on the approach to luke and and you know all this stuff that's very poorly defended. Um, if you if you know if you know how to look at a movie, you know. Now you're sounding like a snob, Rob. <laughs> I, I I'll own that in this case. I feel I feel like I feel like <laughs> we need more snobs when it comes to Star Wars. We need we need to force these people who are too set in their ways to consider other other approaches to their beloved properties. You know what's the funniest thing about um, the Last Jedi? I think there are firmly people in the camp that it's not good at all. And there are people who are friendly in the camp of, it's not bad. I don't think there's a middle ground. It's kind of like different from Revenge of the Sith. I think there's a bit of a middle ground in Revenge of the Sith, mm. but not with The Last Jedi. It's it's kind of funny how it worked out. I don't, well, I mean, there's also a camp with The Last Jedi of people who just, like mostly critics, of course, and people who like look at movies for a living, uh, who loved it and are like, think it's the it's like one of the greatest Star Wars films ever made. Well, there are, there are critics out there who didn't like it too, so. True, yeah. But I'm all I'm saying is that like, you know, there was a lot of appreciation for all of the risks that were taken. Yes. Yes, that's why I appreciate it. Although, I mean, I haven't rewatched it since seeing it in theater. So maybe I'll change my mind when I rewatch it. Well, uh, I'm hoping that it'll come to it it should still come to Netflix Canada in the near future. I feel like Netflix still has that deal with Disney, so uh it'll be it ought to be pretty easy to rewatch in uh, the next couple months. Yeah. Well, it's on home video anyway. So. And then there's, of course, you know, when episode nine comes out, we can all finally go out and rebuy the big Blu-ray box set of all nine films all together. <laughs> Waste some more okay, money together. Okay. Before we end this podcast, I would like to say short, heartfelt thanks to Margot Kidder, who died today. Oh, yes. May 14th. Yes, she did pass away today. The original yep. Lois Lane in Superman. And I cannot think of a better Lois Lane than Margot Kidder, who really put her own spin on it, playing Lois Lane as this, like, chain-smoking, husky-voiced journalist that I don't think any other actress have played um, Lois Lane like the, quite like that. Um, Superman Returns, they, they put, kind of play homage to her because there's a sequence where Kate Bosworth, who plays the new Lois Lane talks about how she's quit smoking. Right. Which is a reference to Margot Kidder. But I really enjoyed her in Superman, and it's too bad that she died today at age 69. Yeah. I feel yeah. I feel kind of sad. Well, I mean, I uh, I still think back to when I hate-watched Smallville. The uh... <laughs> Why'd you hate-watch Smallville? Well, I mean, I, when it was on, I was hate-watching it the whole time. I, I But why the hate? Because it's awful. It's an awful show. 
That, it's 10 it's, seasons of television that had a negative effect on my life, and I will never get those those hours back. Well, why did you and watch it for 10 seasons if you thought it was because bad? I was, because I got five seasons in before I noticed how committed I was, and then I didn't want it to go to waste, and I thought it would redeem <laughs> itself, and it just kept going. And, uh, you know, that's a whole podcast in and of itself is how awful Smallville is as a show. Don't get me started. Come on. But... Come on, no! It's I bring not. it up to to reference the fact that both Margot Kidder and Christopher Reeve they were both had appearances it. on it uh, as sort of like weird, like almost alternate universe versions of their characters within the Smallville interpretation. Yes, um, and I felt like if there was anything that Smallville did right, it was bringing them on for those get for those cameo appearances. Come on, it w- it was pretty decent for the first couple seasons. You have to understand, like the target demographic is like young teenagers. No, I get that. I totally, I totally get that. And if they had stopped it after four seasons, it would have been great. <laughs> on that note, that about does it for this episode. Head on over to kinetoscope.ca where we've posted a review of the full first season of Netflix's Lost in Space. And Jason just posted a review of uh, Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here. But until the next episode, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.